That was the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie lovers. This is Andreas, creator and main editor of Films Fatale, and uh, happily a co-host of this podcast. And we're going to do our monthly routine, and we're happy you're going to be a part of it. Who else is with us on this uh, habitual ceremony that we now do monthly? James here, friendly neighborhood media creator. I am one half of the Preferred to Say podcast, and I also produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. This is Rachel. I write a world cinema column for Films Fatale, and my favorites are world film and the classic era. And if I had to select, I would say pretty much everything, but international and art house for sure. So speaking of all of our tastes, it's that time of the month again. And what do we have? We have the Cinematic Smorgasbord, where if you are listening to us for the first time, what we do is, luckily there's only three of us, so that's a nice odd number. We recommend movies to one another, movies we have never seen. So as we just discussed, Rachel, you are an expert in in classic Golden Age stuff, but also some international stuff. Uh, James, you're into shoestring budgets, indie stuff, but also just some underrated stuff all across the board. I'm into the weird stuff, the art house, the experimental, or just, you know, some of the more artsy international stuff. So we recommend a film to one another. Plus, we also do a book club type deal where we all three of us watch a film that we've never seen before. And this month's selection was Princes Under the Cherry Moon. So we're going to get to that in the second half. And if you joined us, you'll find our findings in the second half of this episode. But now we're going to start off with our individual findings, which you are unaware of. So let's get into our monthly assignments. James, what were you assigned by Rachel? Rachel assigned me the early 2000s film Goodbye Lennon. And how was it? I thought it was good. Can you tell us a bit about the movie? It's a film that centers around the reunification of Germany, which I did not expect someone to tackle the subject in a comedy. That kind of threw me for a loop at first. But yeah, it follows a family in East Germany where the mom is a dedicated socialist and she's always down for that cause. And there, she actually falls into a coma And during this coma, the reunification happens. And when she wakes up, the doctors tell her kids that they don't, they shouldn't do anything to excite her because she could have another heart attack and possibly die. So they decide we're not going to tell her that Germany's won again. We're going to try to figure out how to make sure she still thinks things are the way they are. And yeah, it's just kind of this whole story about, I mean, the primary character is her son, Alex, who is very adamant and very dedicated to making sure she still thinks that East Germany is just East Germany and there's no unification at all. It's kind of really interesting the lengths he goes to also. like He comes up with his own news show that fakes the news and also kind of fills in gaps or, you know explains things that she finds confusing because you know there are some slip-ups that happen all throughout it because in a matter of months when the unification happened everything changed like you know you were starting to see all this weird capitalist stuff there that you know no one would see fashion was different and she would catch glimpses of things so he would i think coca-cola played a part of one part i think yeah (laughs) or west german cars (laughs) yeah yeah and the way he pulls it off is his friend and co-worker is really big into filmmaking so you know he makes like his own little movies so he gives him the task of helping him come up with these weird news stories and yeah it's just a really interesting film that shows the lengths of someone who really cares for their parent and wants to try to do what's best for them even if it's not clearly the best 
It's also an interesting tongue-in-cheek look at the extents of censorship, like how far would, because this is done out of love, that, you know, all of this is going on. It's not out of desperation or trying to lie. It's out of love and fear that a loved one is going to die from shock. So uh, you can only imagine that this is, uh, it's not, but to me, it kind of reminds me of like a Jojo rabbit or something where it's like a very serious discussion, but told with kind of a few giggles, some slight warmth, that sort of a thing. What it's really saying is like, look at how much stuff that countries and governments go through to like hide, to deceive. But here it's not out of love. So it's like a nurturing angle of a very serious conversation. And keep in mind that this came out in the early 2000s, so most of the viewers would remember East Germany and they would have remembered the reunification. And so a lot of those brands and uh, events that happened would have been on their minds. And in fact, it's an actual thing in Germany called Ostalgie, which is um, not, it, it's a sort of remembrance of the way things were in East Germany. And so the movie would have appealed on that level too. I personally love this film. I have, I've only seen it once. I watched it for a world cinema class. At this point, it's been over 10 years ago. But it really does stick with you. Like, I, I clearly remember the climax. It's not exceptionally goofy or anything, but it's, it's like, comedic enough that it's, like, cute, almost. But also still very serious, and it never loses sight of what it's trying to say or how it's trying to say it. I think it's it's tough because is it an underrated film? I do see it being discussed. I think it's maybe in some circles is underseen. It's certainly creative. I wonder if people don't give it enough heft because it's a comedy and they sort of think, oh, it's just a silly comedy. But really, it is much more than that. I'd yeah, say things it, do get kind of lost in that regard. Like that's the only problem. That's the only real issue with comedy is like it can get lost on people. Like it, it's it's almost like a. Like this is could be seen as a product of its time, and only su- as such. Yeah, like a like a strictly two thousands dramedy, which is very different than the dramedies like like the Big Sick or whatever you, that you would get now. Even though they're still the same genre, they're clearly of different worlds. Yeah, I think there was only one thing that disappointed me. I was hoping there'd be some reference to David Hasselhoff's performance <laughs> on the Berlin Wall. And the joke that he's the reason they <laughs> they broke but, the wall down. But 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 James, let's be honest. Uh, I don't think anyone needs to be reminded of that. Let alone a catatonic person. <laughs> let's let's. I don't. I think like like anybody should forget that. So I think that will be fair. Maybe hearing him would have fixed her. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it. It was you know it was just very well done. It didn't. It didn't need to be anything more than it was. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that it worked out because that's one that I also really like. So when Rachel off the air recommended that one, I was like, oh, okay, that's that's an interesting one. I feel like it's it's underloved for sure. So I'm glad that that you had a good time with it. Now we're gonna get into the one that you recommended for me, and already it, it's it's weird because I feel like it's almost. there's some minor minor similarities between the two films you know in goodbye lennon you have like this the censorship or like you know using specific practices as a means of conveying something and that's in a very loose sense there's a there's a connection here with four-eyed monsters which is the film you gave me 
an, an indie film by uh, Susan Bice and, and Aaron Crumley. And they have basically mirrored their real relationship in the cinematic format, but almost by strictly using the conveyances of the digital mediums at the time, whether it's video cameras or even like popular applications or websites. So you're looking at 2006. So this was like MySpace that was heavily used and the idea of the top eight and being replaceable. And there's an interesting narrative here where both partners can't really talk with one another when they're in person right beside each other. So they resort to a series of means like texting or writing on a board or writing on a notepad uh, as if to say they have this amazing connection online or from a distance. But when they're looking at each other, that comfort that people have now in the day of the internet is just gone. Even if you like love one another and they go through the motions, you know, the rising, the falling of the relationship, pretty much everything. And it's a very brief too. It's like 70 minutes and the amount that they are able to pull off with so many different varying ideas. Like it's not just MySpace. It's not just texting. They get really creative with the amount that they do and how they display it. The top eight MySpace pictures start like unveiling themselves in a way without spoiling too much. It gets pretty metaphysical and exceptionally so because I didn't do this, but after the film, there's like a little note that says you can watch like anecdotes that we have created after the fact, if you're interested in seeing more. And that's really interesting. So there is that connection with the audience as well. And speaking of which, the actual filmmakers have put this on YouTube for the world to see for free. So it's a very unique experience. Yeah, it's definitely interesting because you you get a better sense of what's happening when you watch. Because they did a whole like video podcast like miniseries detailing the whole production of it. And yeah, they thought it would be fun to kind of not like even an art imitating life. It's like the art is an exact portrayal of their life because when they got together, it was like, you know, the internet connection and they wanted to keep that spirit alive, which is why they had the different means of not actually speaking and communicating by writing things or, you know, such and stuff like that. It's really interesting when you see the behind the scenes that they put together because it was actually a very self-destructive process. Their relationship was actually very volatile for the most part because of the means of which they had kind of formed this relationship. And then even in relation to the all the people involved, like there's a lot of drama that went on behind the scenes with this whole thing. And it's actually really interesting. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. It, yeah. They actually I think the series I think that video series is on YouTube. If you ever get a chance to check it out, it was definitely really interesting. They also did the classic thing. They maxed out credit cards to shoot it. You know, it was all digital. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like you said, there's all these really interesting because like the animation sections I thought were the most intriguing part because I was like, they were literally oh, trying yeah. to pull these really interesting forms of portraying these stories of themselves. And even like it depends on like what they show and how they show it. So like with the animation, they're discussing, I believe it was like STDs and that talk. It's something like very severe and it's like personal. So what's more personal than like a self-portrait via doodle? And that's exactly what they do. So it's like very inventive with a lot of what they're trying to say and how they say it. And, you know, again, so many different ideas with like zero budget stuffed into 70 minutes. It's like, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but 
if you're into like these digital cinematic experiments from from everyday filmmakers and seeing it done really well, this is certainly a great example. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's unfortunate the way that their career kind of sort of started and ended with this because this actually came out because I think it ended up going to South by Southwest, I think. And when, oh no, I take that back. It was a slam dance film festival that it premiered at. And I don't remember who went to Sundance or South by Southwest, but this came out at the exact same time as uh, Joe Swanberg's Kissing on the Mouth, uh, Andrew Wojcicki's Mutual Appreciation, and the Duplass Brothers' uh, The Puffy Chair. And those were the beginnings of what was considered mumblecore, except Four-Eyed Monsters kind of just got tucked away because they ended up not being the best business people. Like it was supposed to come out and I think the DVD ended up getting shelved when it was originally supposed to be released. And then they wanted to put it on YouTube or they put it on YouTube. And then there's even, I don't remember if it was in the video or some commentary interview I was reading, but Susan like argued that the film should have been on Netflix and Aaron's like, no, it's, it should be just for everyone to see for free. And yeah, they were just like really awful business people and, you know, it's it's sad because they had potential to be great filmmakers. I mean, what they put together is something, you know, it's one of those rare films you don't see it happen often. Like nothing could be made like this ever again. It's interesting because it almost feels like since you brought up the Mumblecore thing, it feels like a bridge between the personal um, experimental films of somebody like a Cecilia Condit or somebody more contemporary like a, like a Jonathan Cowett who did that documentary Tarnation entirely on iMovie. Um, it feels like a bridge between that and what indie ended up becoming with, yeah, again, like the Duplass brothers and everything. So um, that, that that's pretty monumental if that's the case. Yeah, it's. It, I just found it fascinating. I don't. I think I found out about it when I found out about Mumblecore, and I was trying to find it, and I I didn't even realize it was on YouTube. I actually ended up buying it because I think the only place that carried it was Films We Like, and that was like the only place. I think it was going to be distributed by Borders Books, and then just last minute it got like pulled, or I or I don't remember. I don't know if it was pulled or if it was just like you know the way they were handling business. But yeah, there were also stories about how the relationship went after that, and it just seems like. Clearly, these two shouldn't have been together. It was not good for either party because, like, afterwards, it was like, you know, they had all these trials and tribulations afterwards, and just like the relationships of people they made the film with kind of soured. And this film almost reminds me of this this experimental documentary called No Sex Last Night, where it's also filmed by uh, by two artists who are in love, but like on their end, it's more of like a like a suffering relationship. So I, I would recommend that to you if you haven't seen it, but. Otherwise, uh, yeah, Four Eye Monster is very interesting pick. I appreciate you recommending it to me. Um, that was a very short film, Rachel. I, I apologize. I gave you something much longer, but I'm very interested to know how it was. What did I? What did I curse you with this month? Okay, well, I think its length was justified, and that is Ron, the Akira Kurosawa piece that is basically a painting and a play and a movie all at once. It is an adaptation of King Lear, but adjusted to fit a family of samurai. And it's so beautiful. It is really one of the most gorgeous movies I've ever seen. It manages to keep the conventions of a play and theatricality while still keeping that cinematic style to it. And it's so gorgeous to look at that you could see a series of paintings in the frames from this film. Like every frame is perfectly plotted out. 
but the motion is still going on. The movie's still still full of action. And as I said, the runtime was justified. I didn't think it ever dragged. There's enormous battle scenes. There's intimate family moments and it all fits. It just perfectly fits. Yeah. Like for me personally, I don't know how much Kurosawa you've seen. It's tough to pick like just one great film of his because he's done so many. But like if I had to pick, it would be heads and shoulders above the rest. It would be this. Like this is... I would argue this, in my opinion, is, is possibly the greatest directed film of all time. Like, especially those battle sequences and a lot of, like, the bloodshed or, uh, as you said, even, like, the intimate moments. Just everything Kiyosawa does here is, like, a filmmaking miracle, almost. And the use of color is unbelievable. Like, you'll have one red outfit standing out from a gray background, that kind of thing. And... He just plays it off really well. The other thing I appreciated was that it really adapted Lear well. So from what I read, he didn't even consciously turn it into a remake of Lear until partway through production. It's a good example of adapting a work and keeping the spirit of it while changing details to suit the time and place and the medium. Yeah, I know like what you said is true about it. Like, you know, not it wasn't Kurosawa's intention to go into this as a Lear adaptation, but I don't care. This is still my favorite Shakespearean adaptation of all time. It just is. I think it's it's just magnificent. I do love as well when it comes to like the things that were changed with Lear, like who got what specific attributes, because that changed as well. Mm-hmm. It's not even just like who the characters were, because in King Lear, it's three daughters. Uh, in this film, it's it's sons. And the daughters-in-law are the connivers, kind of. Exactly. But it's not even just that. It's like who specifically goes insane and how, or, um, like, who plays Jester and how, or who spe- who suffers specific fates and how. And I, I can't say more than that without spoiling. I'm just going to say Gloucester, hint, hint. Um, <laughs> it's a lot more, uh, like, the way he went about it just fit perfectly, because there are changes, but, like, the heart of King Lear is still there. But otherwise, and you brought up the color, which is interesting because Kurosawa is like, I, you know, he's like synonymous with like the perfection of black and white photography when it comes to Seven Samurai, Rashomon, um, Ikiru. But when it came to like his 80s stuff, you know, you have uh, Kagamusha and then you've got this, which are like insanely colorful films. And obviously he would eventually do stuff like Dreams, which is like, you know, there's a part that literally looks like a Vincent Van Gogh painting. So he would obviously adapt to color there. But knowing that, like who he was previously, it's ast- it's astonishing how beyond good he is with color. It's not even just good. He's like a master of color in these films. Yeah, you could present this movie as a series of tableau very easily. It's that beautiful. And like just the choreography of the battle sequences, the flying arrows, again, the bloodshed. I'm not, like, driven by action with films, but, like, these are uh, forever. My go-to answer was Lawrence of Arabia has the best battle sequences. This is the only film where it's like, well, shoot, I don't know now. <laughs> like, how do you compare the two? Yeah, and it flirts with melodrama. Like, some of the acting, it's very much reminiscent of its theatrical origin, but it doesn't confine itself, which a lot of play-adapted movies do. And So he really understands the medium and adapts it in that way. Yeah, you bring up melodrama. The ending just happens. 
Like, there's mm-hmm. no need to, like, wrap up this three-hour movie with, like, bells and whistles and triumph, which, look, I love when that happens as well, but it shows, like, his absolute guts to end the film of this magnitude and the way that he does. He's just like, well, th- there, there is no other reason to keep continuing, and that, to me, is, like, you know that everything he did wasn't trying to, wasn't him trying to maximize the film, he just did whatever he felt was necessary because he could have easily extended that ending, gone all out. But no, he's like, I'm doing whatever feels necessary. And again, that's why it's arguably the best directed film I've ever seen. Yeah, I would I would agree that it's definitely up there. Those were all three of our picks. It sounds like we all did really well. Now, the big question comes with the film that none of us had seen before, and that's Princess Under the Cherry Moon. So... We talked about Four-Eyed Monsters, which was innovative when it came to Mumblecore. We talked about Goodbye Lennon, which is a great genre-bending comedy drama, which was pretty pivotal for international cinema at its time. Uh, We talked about Ron, which is one of the classics by one of international cinema's greatest auteurs. So I would consider all of these well-made. Is Under the Cherry Moon well made? That no, is but the I don't question. care. <laughs> <laughs> I love this movie. But for the reasons intended, that's the question. Because it sounds like, Rachel, you loved it for other reasons. Well, okay. So the story's not great. The acting's pretty iffy. And the main characters have no chemistry. But at the same time, it's so gorgeously shot. It's really fun to look at. The soundtrack is amazing because it's Prince. Uh, Kristen Scott yeah. Thomas is phenomenal. It's her first lead role. And she was so believable as the it girl. And then, I don't know, there was so much about it that worked that I just enjoyed the story for what it was. Yeah, you bring up the cinematography. That's one of the uh, photographical greats, Michael Bauhaus there. Uh, you know, he's worked with some legends like Rainer Werner Fassbinder and, and Martin Scorsese, or um, Martin Scorsese, as they say in Birdman. It's It's weird. Looking at this thing and the vision that Prince had, it almost felt like I was watching like an eight and a half inspired film, like Fellini-esque almost. Yeah. But at the same time, sense. like like the actual acting and stuff itself was like, no, this is not that at all. It just is something completely different. Uh, James, did you love it? Like, again, for the reasons intended, or was it all ironic? This is why I loved it. I'll start off by saying this film made me understand why people give retrospective praise to showgirls. Which I love, by the way. And that's a, that's a discussion for another day. So you legitimately love this. Yeah. I mean, yes, there's things that are iffy about it. But the one thing that's surprising was it maintains consistency with the iffiness. It's not a typical bad film where there's like, you know, highs and lows and there's this wavering like, okay, this is inconsistent. It's like, it's pretty consistently like bad in certain spots. But like you said, there's just certain things. It's how, how was this shot so good? How was the composition of the shot so good? The editing was great. Honestly, and it's like, even though the act was bad, I think the characters themselves were great. But it's just like the story and the acting and just like Rachel said, there's not much chemistry with the leads as romantic interests. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously the soundtrack's great and it just furthers my point that Prince should have done movie scores like his entire career because for some reason it just worked, which it it kind of was awkward at first because it's like it kind of is framed with a classic Hollywood sensibility, which is one of the reasons I picked it because I figured there'd be something Rachel would appreciate. 
It definitely carried that vibe of classic Hollywood very well. Like it was believable in that sense, but also very Mm. 80s. Also like certain characters names, like, you know, Prince is Christopher Tracy. I was like, that would only exist in like something in the thirties or forties. Also his sidekick tricky. Yes. Yeah. He's like the generic sidekick you see in all the, like, you know, the big shot guy and all those kind of movies. They have the sidekick who just kind of like, you know, and they're just, you know, I don't know what to call him in this movie. Cause like Christopher Tracy's not like, I don't know, he's, I guess he's kind of a gigolo, but they're, I don't know what to call them. Cause they're, they're almost like a team. They call them gigolos throughout the film. as like insults. <laughs> like I do, yeah, I, that's do true. I do recall <laughs> that. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this movie. Uh, on one hand, aesthetically, yeah, it's well shot. I love Parade, like the album. So I guess that doubles as a soundtrack. Um, the occasional, because a lot of these songs weren't like actually sung diegetically or even lyrically here, like uh, Under the Cherry Moon, the actual title track of the film is just like an instrumental here whereas on the album you get like the actual lyrics and everything i was assuming that song was going to come out when like the bats happened because like it's a very like transylvanian like vampire sounding song but no that's not when it came uh, but uh you know there's that uh and i might butcher the name of this the girls and boys song like that one where they like actually like perform live and it's oh, like right it's like actually infectious i'm like you know these are the moments i live for that type of stuff is, is awesome. Otherwise, I love Prince, but I found him unintentionally hilarious throughout this thing. Um, yeah, the man they, was they, not they, an actor they, or a director. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other thing. It's like Prince directed it. Like, I, I imagine it would have gone differently had he not directed it himself. But I almost wish he would have made more films just to see what would happen. Yeah. yeah uh, imagine if he was still working today. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, if he was still working today, if Elvis could make a million, like, super mediocre films, at least this was, like, not great, but it's interesting. So, um, you know, compared to, like, you know, a million Elvis Hawaiian films, like, at least this is, like, okay, I don't like it, but everyone's a character. There's certainly a style to this. There's certainly Prince's weird sense of humor to this. It's oh, yeah. signature. It's a signature film. It's not great, but it's like his. It's authentically his. I wouldn't have given it five Razzies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what yeah. What are you doing Razzies for? Let's have a look. Uh, which, first off, I actually find Howard the Duck more entertaining, but Under the Cherry Moon is not as bad as Howard the Duck. L- no. Let's get real. It's not as bad. So what did it win? So it won Razzies for... Uh, Worst actor and worst director. Um, okay. Worst supporting actor for Jerome Benton. A worst, ori- worst original song. It's Prince, for God's sakes. Okay, that one I don't necessarily agree with. And KST got nominated for worst supporting actress, which, like, she did nothing wrong in that movie. Sorry. I would argue if she came off badly, it's because of either the directing or the editing. Her performance itself was not bad. Plus, she's a legend in general, so, I mean, like, who cares? I think one of my favorite things is despite how wonky it is, Prince had the charisma of a, a legitimate movie star. Like this, you know, yeah. he he never did interviews. The most you'd get, it's like you'd see like his performances was who he is, but to see him acting and actually like speaking consistently for a long period of time, it's like, I almost wish he would have done more movies in general, not even like his own just acting. Cause you know, he, he's clearly a guy who loved movies. And he certainly wasn't boring to watch at all. 
No, oh, definitely not. Never, never. And I know, um, like, like James and I are princess obsessives to, to varying degrees. Uh, Rachel, I know, um, I wouldn't say you're, like, not a fan, but, like, you know, I, I don't think you've experienced as much Prince. I don't know uh, much about Prince at all, to be honest. You said you liked the music. Would you be willing to check out more? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I was playing it all day today. <laughs> oh, like, uh, oh. the actual Parade soundtrack? <laughs> awesome. Yes, like, the actually. Actual album? I was like, I'd better catch up. It's really good. And I would say this, and James might disagree with me, Parade's not even close to his best album. And that's how good he gets. Like, Prince is amazing. I guess to wrap up this segment, James, do you have any recommendations for Prince albums for, for Rachel and, and listeners? Um, do you go obvious? The, Purple Rain? <laughs> well, the first six for sure. Pretty much everything through the 80s. Yeah. So like Controversy, um, 1999. Uh, Controversy and Dirty Mind are my absolute favorites. Dirty Mind is amazing. It's like Elvis Costello, but better. Like, okay. Much better. I'll have um, to check it out. My pick would be Sign of the Times. It's a double album. Every song is different, but every song is perfect. Also, the Batman I, uh, soundtrack. Oh, yeah. True. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, which only like three songs were in the movie, and he made an entire album. Because, I mean, he's Prince. Why not? <laughs> okay, well, I've got a lot of listening to do over the next few days. Yeah, but that was, uh, you know, when it comes to these uh, book club selections, uh, it's still one of us that does it. So that was your pick, James. I believe it's your turn, Rachel, to pick the next month. So we know what it is already. Tell the listeners at home, what are we going to be watching this month and why? Okay, so I chose Supernova, which came out in the past year. It was completely missed by all of the award ceremonies. And it stars Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth playing a couple. And I will not say anything more about it. Fantastic. So that's what we're going to be watching, Supernova. It's a nice brisk what is it 90 minutes very short and sweet Something like that yeah uh, i think it's pretty accessible as well so uh, we look forward to that and we hope that you do too having said that we've got more than just prince recommendations and uh, smorgasbord recommendations we're gonna say farewell and sign off for the night with our weekly our weekly choices so james what are you gonna recommend to listeners this week and why when you brought up Ron, which I haven't seen, unfortunately, uh, the whole thing with King Lear, it made me think of the movie The King is Alive by Christian Levering, which is the fourth Dogma 95 film to be released. Oh, wow. And it is about a group of tourists in the Namibian desert, and their tour vehicle runs out of gas and they're stranded. And as kind of tensions get high, there is a character who happens to be a theatrical manager. So he persuades the group to uh, put on their own production of King Lear. And as things goes on, the play starts to or the real life starts to resemble the play and it gets kind of surreal and everybody's kind of like losing their minds. It's just it's a really interesting film. It also is stars actually who's all in this because there's a couple people actually the most notable, i think jennifer jason lee is in it she was like the most notable in this movie that i can think of at least that i had ever seen factoring her in deep prime as well yeah so yeah cool. it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting film awesome i will i'm gonna have to check that out my recommendation this week and i hope i've not brought this up before when people discuss martin scorsese I only watched this for the first time last year. I I think it is one of the most 
underlooked, underrated films I think I've ever seen, and actually one of Scorsese's best. It's this really weird black comedy film of his called After Hours. I was just going to ask it, if it was After Hours. That movie's yeah. so good. I absolutely adore that film, and uh, it stars Griffin Dunn, which basically all you need to know about the movie is it takes place exactly when the title states, After Hours, and it's almost like Scorsese's version of a Louis Bunuel film, specifically the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. All they wanted to do was have a dinner. All this guy wants to do is get home, and let me tell you, it just gets more and more and more stupid as it keeps going. And I adored for that. I I actually almost fell out of my seat by the end. I actually was like in tears laughing at the end because of the sheer audacity of this film. I think it's a comedy classic. I think it's genius. And when it comes to like the oeuvre of Martin Scorsese, I don't know why people don't discuss it enough. I feel like they're starting to, which is fantastic. So I'm going to go with After Hours. Okay, I'm going to go with Days of Wine and Roses, which features two phenomenal performances from Jack Lemmon and Lee Remick. And it's about a couple who fall in love and then fall into a relationship with alcohol, which ends badly for both of them. For 1962, this was pretty daring. And um, it was very well regarded in its day. Lots of Oscar nominations, things like that. But it's kind of not on the radar anymore. And so I thought I'd bring it up. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it's got like a Playhouse 90 connection as well, doesn't it? I think so, yes. Cool, which is a show I've been meaning to check out and a film I've been meaning to check out as well. I think it's, it got like a recent induction into the uh, National Registry. Yes, Plus, I mean, that, right, I love Jack Lemmon. I think, I think I know this because I'm pretty sure you've brought this up to me before and I still have yet to see it. So I'm still going to have to check that out. It looks fantastic. And I will also add that you can find us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under the K-Cut. Absolutely. And as you know, that was the K-Cut, and now we're going into the L-Cut. <laughs>